Welcome to PodClast, an educational podcast that focuses on current topics for educators and parents and those interested in making a difference in education. I'm Laura Axtell, the host, and we will end season six today with a review of current research connected to the science of reading. PodClast is sponsored by Reading Horizons, a foundational reading program based on the science of reading that can be delivered in person, virtually, and in a blended learning model with instructional software for students in kindergarten through 12th grade. Visit readinghorizons.com to learn more. So for today's episode, we're going to do something a little different. I've invited Paul Black, who is a member of the Reading Horizons team as an education specialist. But Paul is also a practicing school psychologist with years of providing support to schools and doing educational assessments and recommending interventions for students with, who are struggling readers. And so we're going to talk about research. We're going to take a look at some of the most important topics that have come up over the last couple of months and really dig a little bit deeper into kind of where we are and where we go from here. So welcome to PodClast, Paul. Oh, I'm excited to be here, Laura. Thank you for having me. So um, let's start off with a really important discussion about how reading programs are often identified or identify themselves. So we hear the terms research-based or evidence-based all the time. And what does that really mean? The difference between research design and evidence-based or research-based and evidence-based is huge. And, and it's a welcome shift to move away from research-based to evidence-based. And to, to understand why that is such a welcome shift, you really have to know the terms or the definition between the two. A research-based, it's not something that's proven. Like when you say, prove it to me, you know, and you can pull out a study that says we did this, this and this, and this was the results and it was controlled. And then you can say, OK, that's evidence based. But research based is, well, I read some articles, I looked at the research and then I designed an intervention or a curriculum based on that. But it hasn't been proven. And that's part of why we've gotten into the place that we are. But thankfully, the tide's turning because. Uh, a lot of research is interpreted through the lens of the uh, beholder or the some, or the person that's reading it, and it's not always accurate. So having a shift towards evidence-based that says this is our research, this is how we prove it, and this is why it works, and I can prove it to you, is a very welcome shift, Laura. So when we talk about evidence-based, that generally means having a controlled experimental study where there's a control group where there's, you know, it's randomized and that that control group is being compared with a group receiving a very specific practice or program to see if there's any significant difference and that you're controlling for those variables. So it's got to be just this particular thing that has caused the change, right? That's right. And, and this gets a little bit tricky. And because while it, it is a welcome shift to evidence based, it's not easy to do the types of studies that are required. We can't control all those variables and students are human subjects. So that requires lots of layers of safeguarding protections and confidentiality and all those things. So who even does that kind of educational research that would qualify? Isn't that one of the first challenges? Yeah, well, not only who does it, uh, well, and we know who does it. Usually it's a third party, a firm, a research firm. That's most common. But then they have to be paid. I mean, this isn't something that they're doing out of the goodness of their hearts. They have careers and families that they're supporting and lifestyles. And who funds them? Who pays for that? 
If it's the publisher of the curriculum, then there's an inherent conflict of interest. And how is that mitigated or how is that controlled? So while we're moving to this evidence-based shift, which is a good thing, there are still roadblocks that need to be addressed um, to make it easier to do and less expensive. And you're right. If, if the schools could do it, they would. But I mean, teachers don't have enough time anyway. I'm just thinking about especially longitudinal studies, which is really what we'd like to see about how what the effect is over time. But, you know, schools have to agree to participate. They have to have parental releases. They have to make sure that they're following all the very specific parameters. And that's, you know, staff time. They have to go through usually specific kinds of training. They often don't have the personnel or, you know, the time to participate. And then what about the students? You know, students move in and out of districts all the time. A teacher's out for maternity leave or illness. And, you know, and then there's a pandemic <laughs> that totally disrupts. I mean, how many variables is too many variables? Right. So so for all those reasons, really hard to truly get evidence-based research with schools. Oh, I completely agree. I can read the research and see that it's a valid evidence-based curriculum or approach, but when I try and apply it in a school setting, it doesn't always fit because that research comes out of a lab in a very controlled setting. So how do you control all those variables and have the teacher that's trained and do all those extra additional things when they're trying to just manage a classroom? and make adequate progress throughout the year. It's, it's just impossible, but it's something that we need to discuss and address so that decision makers on the school district level can make decisions that are specific to their populations that they're serving, that they don't have to rely on research done by a third party, which the publisher paid for, that's not always going to translate into the classroom. Right. So the other category that you mentioned is the research-based or evidence-informed that describes instruction, assessment, or intervention. And that generally refers to practices and programs that were developed to align with what we do know are best practices from available research. But I know that now a lot of other ways of validating reading approaches is being undertaken by states because they're determining what specific components of instruction based on research is going to be provided in order to qualify as effective reading instruction so that schools or districts are real, get a list sometimes. These are the programs that have been shown to be effective based on research. Is that what you're hearing and seeing as well? Yes, Laura, that is exactly what I'm hearing. And I think this is the way that it's going to be patterned going forward, that the state, the State Board of Education will review the curriculum and the research associated with it and determine whether or not it meets state standards. And then local school districts can pull from that list and see what works best for their, their local students. There's a lot of misinformation still about this because a lot of individual school districts across the country automatically default to evidence for ESSA or the What Works Clearinghouse. And just because they're on those lists doesn't mean that they're approved for that state. And in fact, some states are actually passing legislation that requires that schools use an evidence-based approach for reading. Yeah. And this this is welcome news, too. And, and there's states that are even taking a step further because curriculum is only half of the puzzle. You have to have that professional development piece in there, too. So you have states like Colorado that says, OK, we're going to require evidence-based curriculum based on the science of reading in all of our classrooms. But we're also going to require our higher education institutions to teach the science of reading. 
We know that research is happening, especially as it relates to reading research, all the time, and that's yielding new understandings um, about what it means to be effective, and that changes all the time. So that really requires programs and folks who are implementing reading intervention to keep very current on the reliable research, and they have to be able to adapt as new information becomes available. So if we think something today and we create a program around that and that changes six months from now and we get new information or better information, that's really a challenge as well. Oh, it is. And and I think it, it, it speaks to we have not arrived. We are still grappling and discovering with how the brain processes information and reading to a large extent. Now, there's there's so much that we know and so much that we can leverage inside of the classroom. But we have to have that growth mindset that we preach to our kids in our classrooms that, you know, we're striving to understand more and more every day. Because again, we haven't arrived. And, and some of the best advice that I received in my uh, graduate program was read 15 minutes of research a day, Monday through Friday, because it evolves and it changes. And if you've been in the career for a while, you can look back and see, yeah, okay, it's a lot has changed. But keeping that growth mindset where we're continuing to learn and grow is critical, absolutely critical. And there's a lot of stuff that's just come out recently, like in the last few weeks, Laura, that that reinforce that, you know, there's still so much we have to learn. Well, that brings us to our next hot topic in the world of reading research. And that's the discussion that's very recent around the difference and need for phonemic versus phonological awareness, and rather or not, students benefit most when they receive instruction or practice with those individual speech sounds, so phonemes, or and or larger units of sound such as syllables, onset rhyme, etc., which is phonological awareness. So could you talk a little bit about what the research is telling us about that? Oh, and this is fascinating. And for, boy, I think the last five years, we've really been focusing on phonological awareness in the schools, but maybe not as explicitly as at the phonemic or phoneme awareness and tying that to explicit reading and writing instruction. So, for example, it's not uncommon for you to go into a kindergarten classroom and they'll hear rhymes. They'll hear uh, things like, say, bad. Now, what's the first sound in bad? Buh. As they get older, say spaghetti. What sound comes before the a and spaghetti? The sp sound, right? We have focused on the sound part, but we haven't tied that in to the graphemes, to the letter sound identification that's associated with those phonemes. So this, this is where the research is really important so that we have evidence to support the instructional practices. And we have some really big names in the literacy world, Dr. Susan Brady, Dr. Mark uh, Seidenberg, Dr. David Kilpatrick, Dr. Louisa Motes, and many others who have written and spoken about this particular topic extensively. And and here are some of the most recent information based on the research, okay? So phonological awareness is very appropriate for younger children. Think preschool, three to four-year-olds. And that's identifying the number of syllables in their name, you know, clapping the syllables in the word, playing word games. But when they enter kindergarten, Dr. Brady shares research findings that indicate awareness of those larger sound structures, such as syllables, is not a necessary prerequisite to acquiring awareness of phonemes. Okay, so phoneme awareness, so phonemic awareness should be the primary focus in kindergarten 
kindergarten, progressing from that initial phoneme to the final phoneme and then to the medial vowel in words with uh, a simple syllable structure like the CV or VC or CVC words. That's consonant, vowel, consonant. So if, if you don't know what a C is, um, we say CV, consonant, vowel. So and as children, you know, or students master each of these beginning levels of phonemic awareness, they can move on to the next one. And this is a this is a shift from what you see in most kindergarten classrooms because they're still focusing on that phonological awareness or or the those larger sound structures rather than moving forward and attaching it to letters and graphemes. Then the next issue that comes up is rather or not that phonemic awareness if that's what we're concentrating on should be introduced alone or at the same time as letters. And there's been some real debate over that. So it's helpful to see what the research says. Dr. Brady shares students benefit from instruction that explicitly links phoneme awareness of initial, final, and medial vowel phonemes, excuse me, with corresponding letter skills, rather than providing these two components of reading development as unaligned, isolated learning goals. They should be one and the same. They should go together not be completely separated or focused on the one without the other. So it sounds like there's no problem if schools or teachers wanted to spend a few minutes doing phonemic awareness activities, but the instruction is best going to benefit students when it links those sounds with letters, right? Yeah, that's right. And 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 this has been supported by many others, including uh, Dr. Louisa Motes, you know, the author of Letters Training. Um, because it also connects to orthographic mapping, which is the ability of the brain to store that visual representation of words that connect the pronunciation to the order of the letters in the word. So, for example, immediately recognizing the difference between the words girl and grill, you know, uh, because the brain has stored each of those words connected to the pronunciation. So what we've always referred to as sight words. We know those words on sight. Dr. Aries theory of orthographic mapping is a separate empirically supported theory of how students map graphemes to phonemes in both phonetically regular words as well as words with phonetically uh, irregular parts. And there's lots of discussion about orthographic mapping and the importance of orthographic mapping. So you kind of have to have the letters connected to the sounds in order for the brain to, you know, connect pronunciation to how the word is spelled, right? Absolutely. And and Dr. Aries' theory, I mean, we don't have time to dive into that, but that's one of those transformational research studies that really, for me, binds these two together. We'll be back after a short break. Podcast is sponsored by Reading Horizons, the creator of a phonics-based reading curriculum that combines professional learning, direct instruction materials, and technology tools to empower teachers to implement the principles of reading science in the classroom. Here is a short success story from Denise, a teacher using Reading Horizons in Pennsylvania. I was part of the Reading Horizons pilot program. You know, we were all just amazed at the level of training that we received in two days. You know, teachers were walking out basically saying, you know, they learned more in two days than probably any graduate course they could have taken. I could not be more impressed with Reading Horizons from my initial contact with the trainers to the supports that are always available every time I have a question about something. But even more than that, I think the research behind Reading Horizons program, what they deliver, 
you see it in your students. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. That's what we're here for is to make sure our students are getting the research-based systematic phonics instruction that they need and they deserve to have. And Reading Horizons provides it. Visit readinghorizons.com to learn more. So, Paul, there's a couple of other considerations on whether or not students need to actually be proficient at advanced phonemic awareness tasks like deleting and manipulating, and rather they need to actually master a set of skills before moving on. What does the research say about that? Oh, let's go back to Dr. Brady, and she has a wonderful quote. If you don't mind if I, I just quote that so I don't misinterpret her. She says, this is Dr. Brady again, we do not have evidence at this time to suggest teaching phonemic awareness tasks to oral proficiency or using only advanced phoneme tasks, such as deletion or substitution. On average, the studies that have used letter or graphemes in phonemic awareness tasks have had larger effects on students' learning than those that did not. And studies that include blending and segmenting had larger effects than those that did not. So both types had positive significant effects on student outcomes. So blending and segmenting with letters and sounds shows the best results. So you don't have to master a certain area or segment to move on to the next one. And this is shown too in my own personal experience. If say I have a fourth grader that only reads on a second grade level. Well, I'm not going to limit my fourth graders to just second grade text because the research has clearly shown that they should be exposed to grade level text because it pushes them. And it it helps that gap from widening. We know that one of the characteristics of dyslexia can often be difficulty with phonemic awareness. And so those students who have characteristics of dyslexia may need way more support and time spent really building those neural pathways for sound than other students who don't have those difficulties. So really differentiation is going to be a key factor here, right? Oh, absolutely. We need to get in front of the problem now more than ever, because there is a sense of urgency because we have students that are um, prone to dyslexia or have those characteristics, but haven't had intervention yet. You know, like real um, specific, targeted, intensive intervention to help us mediate those issues so it doesn't become a problem. And all the data that I've read shows that if, if we delay, if we don't start intervening until after the second grade, it's four times as long, it's considerably more expensive, and the social emotional impacts start to play a factor as well. And I don't want to leave out secondary because often what we find is in working with struggling readers and why they're so far behind is often that they are they do have difficulty with the sounds. They never really got solid on that phonology sound symbol correspondence. And so they're not really sure how to apply those those phonemes in when they are connecting to um, syllable types and things like that. So Again, this isn't just for K3. This is also for anybody beyond that who we see struggling. We need to go back to the beginning. We really need to assess, are they able to, you know, do what exactly what we're talking about? You know, those phonemic awareness skills and then beginning to delete and blend and segment, etc. Oh, absolutely. And so I cover K through 12 in my the schools that I, I work at. And without fail, Laura, when I'm doing a special education evaluation or a triennial evaluation or progress monitoring, and it's a, a newer student that I'm running across and they're in middle school or even in fourth, fifth grade or even in 10th, 11th grade. In fact, I had an 11th grader the other day we were doing some progress monitoring on 
And there are still short vowel sounds that they don't hear. That's going to really lower the ceiling on where they can go in their reading fluency and their reading comprehension unless we go back and we fill those gaps. Now, the struggle is finding something that's developmentally appropriate that maintains their dignity because the last thing a senior in high school wants for a reading intervention is a kindergarten book or a first grader book, even though that's where a lot of the concepts are taught. And so, Still, it just reinforces that fact that at the secondary level, you still have to fill in those gaps and those foundational skills if they're going to move forward with fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension. Which comes back to the need for programs that are connected to what we know about research all the way through K-12 and even into adults. Absolutely. But Anita Archer has said it best. There's no compens- and there's no comprehension strategy that can compensate for the fact that you just can't read the words. Yet that's what many of our secondary students are struggling with. Um, there's got to be a dignified, better way to support their needs. And that is a critical gaping hole right now, I think, in the world of, of curriculum that needs to be filled more effectively. Absolutely. So our next topic, a big one as well, is does teacher knowledge about the science of reading lead to an increase in student reading achievement? Because we know that more and more teachers and districts and states are understanding the value of, you know, that professional learning about how to teach reading and then understanding the science. But there's a lot out there. So the question is, does it make a difference? So, Lord, there's a report in What Works Clearinghouse of a study done in 2005 to 2006 that shows that there isn't really a considerable effect or significant effect on student achievement based solely on teacher understanding of best practices or, or teacher professional development. Now, that was in 2005 and 2006. And that doesn't take into account that we have had an explosion of research in the science of reading. And now we have that. So now a meta-analysis of this research was published in 2007 by the Regional Education Laboratory Southwest that looked at 1,300 studies uh, related to the effect of teacher professional development on student achievement. Of those studies, only nine met the criteria for what works clearinghouse. So that reinforces just how difficult it is, Laura, to meet those standards. Can you imagine nine out of 1,300? When I see that low of an acceptance rate, I'm thinking, okay, there's something that needs to change or an evaluation of the gatekeeping, so to speak, needs to, to take place. So what it found was that substantial professional development for teachers, an average of 49 hours and nine studies was shown to boost student achievement by about, are you ready for this, Laura? 21 percentile points. That's huge, okay? And I've been saying it all along, the most effective intervention for any student is a teacher with the right training and the right tools. And this certainly validates that. We should point out that all nine studies using a workshop model or a summer institute to provide this PD to teachers. Okay, so another interesting finding was that those professional learning options that included more than 14 hours showed a positive and significant effect on student achievement. So the saying, you know, when we know better, we do better is absolutely accurate in this particular topic. So, and that leads us to Mississippi. And when I was in college in education, in my undergraduate and graduate, Mississippi was the butt of all jokes when it comes to uh, reading achievement and reading progress. Not anymore. <laughs> Not anymore. And it, this is proof in the pudding. During the 2019 NAEP or National Assessment of Educational Progress testing, every state had fourth grade reading scores that stayed the same or declined 
So the long-term pattern of only one-third of students scoring proficient in reading didn't change much. Right? I think it was at 35% for fourth graders and 38% fluency for eighth graders. That was across the board for all states except, which one? Mississippi, which was a real surprise because they posted the highest growth of all states in reading, Mississippi. So, so what caused that significant increase for that state in particular? Well, Mississippi's been on the forefront of getting the science of reading into the classrooms and developing that skill set among teachers. And there's been a real strong collaboration over the last couple of years between the State Department of Education and universities preparing teachers in undergraduate and graduate programs, including University of Mississippi Center of Excellence in Literacy Instruction and the Barksdale Reading Institute. And they took a two-pronged approach to this. First, they concentrated on higher education or teacher training programs so that teachers could enter the classroom with more knowledge uh, and more and being more prepared to teach reading. Uh, the State Board of Education now requires that pre-service teachers have two courses that cover phonics instruction and comprehension and mandates a licensure assessment for teachers who teach reading in K through three. So what you're saying is that making sure teachers have the knowledge before they enter classroom, before they start teaching, is really important. And it seems so intuitive, right? I mean, right. it's like, what, we, like we haven't been doing this, but the majority of states still don't do that. Um, that's changing, though, and Mississippi is changing it. Okay, And they haven't forgotten about the teachers that are already in the classroom. Laura, so they've really invested heavily in professional development for those existing classroom teachers. And that includes coaching and mentoring. And those schools that need even more intensive intervention services, they were eligible for literacy coaches to provide support for those K-3 classroom teachers. So in their summary of this process, they say that, that the secret to changing those reading scores, the trajectory and making that growth is to do what we know works and to do it the same way every time. I think the word that we use is fidelity. And, and that speaks to having research-based training for teachers and curriculum that is connected to the science. You know, and, and no surprise, structured literacy is the common term for that now. So teacher knowledge is absolutely essential. But how that knowledge is translated in the classroom and between and across grades is also important. And we refer to that as vertical alignment. So in Mississippi, if you're a first grader and you move to the second grade teacher, you don't have to learn new jargon. You don't have to learn a new interpretation because it's the same. They're using what works across the board. If I move to a different county, a different school district, I should be getting the same kind of instruction of what works in that classroom from a teacher that has received the same kind of training. So, so in order to ensure consistency among what students are receiving with explicit systematic instruction, whether that's a very experienced teacher or a brand new teacher, it really does require the materials and resources for teachers and students. And there's lots of discussion about that now. So what we're seeing is that teachers absolutely need training and they need a solid understanding of science of reading, structured literacy, but they also need materials and resources in the classroom because every teacher could take that training that they've received and interpret that differently. That's right. They need they need something consistent to connect the science or connect the theory into practice. Right. Well, and part of structured literacy is about that cumulative, very systematic instruction, which can't 
happen if everybody's kind of doing their own thing, right? That's right. And, you know, Mississippi has proven without a doubt, the teacher is the most valuable intervention that they have. If they give them the right training and the right tools, and those tools include a a curriculum based on structured literacy that's explicit and systematic, you're going to have great success. And they're the one state, the one state out of 50 that changed the trajectory and actually had reading growth with their students. And if that doesn't give school districts and local education authorities around the nation pause and say, okay, I really ought to consider that approach and bring that to where I am, then I don't know what else will. Well, and just to to put a fine point on that, and that has to happen in tier one. That has to happen in the general ed classroom, not wait until students have been identified and then try and create or cobble together some sort of intervention to support them. What they're doing is for every classroom, every student, every grade K-3, right? Oh, absolutely. Preach, Laura. (laughs) We're very good in in education about being reactive, waiting until a problem has taken hold before we do something about it. And that's to our detriment. My favorite intervention has always been a tier one intervention. Get it in the classroom before the problem develops and avoid it. And and that saves, it's not only an issue of time for the teacher and money that could be spent other ways instead of intervention. It's, It's an issue of fairness for the student. They shouldn't have to suffer if they don't need to. I mean, this becomes a social emotional issue. I mean, can you imagine going to work for six hours a day and not being good at your job? You're going to feel like you're a terrible person. You're not very worthwhile or valued. Well, that's what a student that struggles to read feels like every single day in the classroom. If we can help them avoid that by getting in front of the problem and preventing it so they don't need that intervention, then everybody wins. Everybody wins, but especially that student. Right. But just to go back to your point about teachers, I think that's why there's a Facebook group now called, you know, the science of reading what I should have learned in college that now has 85,000 people on that Facebook group. And it's really focused on, you know, teachers understanding that we didn't get what we needed in this such essential topic and connected to practice in the classroom. And because of that, Many of us floundered around for years and many teachers still feel like they're floundering because they're just now hearing what they feel like they should have gotten in their pre-service education. And that's why higher ed is so important. Let me add my own personal uh, witness here. I don't know what else to call it. Uh, when we moved, my the district that I currently work in, when we moved to tier one prevention instead of a tier two intervention model, wait until the problem is taken hold. And we have a saying in the school, it's called the wait to fail model. We're not going to do anything until they're failing. Then we'll give intensive intervention. When we moved away from that and we incorporated explicit systematic phonics instruction with structured literacy in kindergarten and first grade and second grade for 45 minutes a day in tier one, I reduced my referral rate for reading skills by by 30 percent. Okay, that's huge. And that's numbers on a page. But what you don't see is you don't see the parents just over overjoyed, like, oh, my child doesn't have to go through that, or they have it better than I did, because oftentimes the parents struggle just like the student, and they get to avoid that, you know, and you you get to see the students that just go on their happy, merry way, and don't have to be pulled out of class for extra intervention and things like that, and, and miss out on things, and that's really why we do it. I mean, intrinsically, there's no better reward than seeing a student that would have struggled or did struggle be able to regain that trajectory, close that gap, and maintain a sense of belonging in their classroom because they can do what the other students do. 
And as you mentioned, giving teachers the knowledge and skills and tools that they need to be effective in the classroom to help students get there. If we keep that only for interventionists or literacy specialists, and that doesn't filter down to the teacher in the classroom, we're continuing this problem that's existed literally over decades. Yeah, and this this goes back to, you know, that saying, what is learned hinges on what is taught. And we have to be able to teach what students need and not just what we teach, but how we teach it. And that's where the teacher training comes in. Well, thank you, Paul, for this really, really interesting conversation. And a couple of other educational topics that we're going to explore next season include, again, some hot topics. So equity in the classroom and really shining a light on the existing research around that. And then also a relatively new field that's being spearheaded primarily by Dr. Julie Washington on dialectical language and her research on the structure, acquisition, and use of African-American English and the connection to reading achievement and educational progress. So there's going to be additional information this summer that we'll definitely be discussing in next season. So I can't wait to have this talk again to really dig in on some important topics. Oh, me as well, Laura. It's been a pleasure. There has been so much discussion about the science of reading in the last year, and so much of this information is new to so many educators. It can be helpful to summarize some of the most relevant research so that we can translate research into classroom practice. When we know better, we do better. As we close, we want to give a final thank you to our sponsor, Reading Horizons, and to all of you for listening. Help spread the word about PodClast by sharing a link to your favorite episode on any social platform or review PodClast on Apple Podcasts. We look forward to having you join us for Season 7.